There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome back, Fight Fans, for the Fight City Podcast first show of 2022. I'm your host, Alden Kodash, and I hope everyone had a great New Year's and is as optimistic as I am for what boxing has in store for 2022. For our first show, we're going to feature an exclusive interview with Steve Gaffard, the man who just this past weekend received a call on one week's notice telling him that he'll be fighting Joe Smith Jr. for the WBO light heavyweight title, stepping in for Callum Johnson, who unfortunately tested positive for COVID. Following that interview, we're going to have a slice of heavyweight history I know you'll enjoy when Michael Carbert and Hunter Breckenridge talk about some of the most underrated heavyweight rivalries in boxing history. Stay tuned. So next up, we have Steve Gaffard, who has just been informed yesterday that he'll be fighting for the WBO Light Heavyweight Championship of the World. Well, first of all, congratulations, Steve. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So, it's not every day that you get a call asking you on a week's notice if you want to fight for the championship of the world, kind of like Rocky-esque. So, uh, if you could take us through what happened when you woke up on Friday morning to when you accepted to fight Joe Smith Jr. Yeah, I woke up, you know, uh, I did my thing. It was like early in the morning, I did my morning run, then I was in the sauna at Delray Boxing, and... My coach calls me. He's like, my coach, Kevin Cunningham, he called me. He's like, man, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I want you to fight um, for the title, the WBO world title, because uh, someone got sick or something. And I was like, wow. You know, it didn't really hit me right that second, but it was like, yeah, wow. Callum Johnson, yeah, Callum Johnson originally slated the fight, pulled out due to covid uh, was there any hesitation in your mind of uh, whether or not to, to take this fight on a week notice, or, or was it just a clear-cut decision? Yeah, well, my phone was about to die when I was with my talking to my coach, but um, I like pl- I said, let me call you back, and I plugged it in, and uh, I just and then I told him I texted him. I, I called my friend Erickson Lubin. Told him about it. He was like, "Yeah, man, this opportunity of a lifetime." You know, he was like, "Man, this is unreal, man." And then, um, yeah, I just texted my coach, and I was like, "Yeah, man, let's do it." And then, within a few hours, everything was signed, and and uh, boom, now it's fight week. Yep. So uh, yeah, it's been. Heard it said many times that it's so important to stay in shape year round because you never know when the phone's going to ring and you'll have an opportunity like this. In your case, you were previously scheduled to fight an eight round contest this weekend. Uh, now you're going into a 12 round contest. Uh, you've been scheduled to fight 12 rounds before in, in China against Dmitry Sikovsky. Uh So, how strategically does this sudden change play in your mind? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I wasn't preparing for a twelve-round fight, but you know, um, you know, this is boxing. You know, you gotta expect the unexpected. Uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm just going to have to make adjustments as we go in uh in um yeah, you just have to make adjustments as as you go in the fight, you know? Like Yeah. Yeah, nothing boxing not too much ever goes as planned, so just gonna have to make adjustments and figure out a way. So Smith, he's been in with the better opposition as a pro, but you have a much better amateur pedigree in, in winning multiple national titles and almost making the twenty twelve Olympic team. On top of that, you've trained with some very top light heavyweights like Sergey Kovalev, Alida Alvarez, Arthur Paterbiev, just to name a few. Does this all give you confidence that maybe Joe Smith Jr. is not necessarily as big a step up in class as most are deeming him to be? Um, yeah, I mean, I I know my skills. I believe in my skills and stuff. I, I uh, know my skills can match up with the best in the division. Um you know, obviously, yeah, I wasn't training for a 12-round world title fight, but, you know, like you said, you know, I was training. I'm not just coming out off the couch. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a fighter, and, you know, that switch, I'm going to have to just turn on that switch and lock in and, and, and get the job done, you know? Yeah. So you've worked with several elite trainers throughout your pro career, starting with Ronnie Shields and John David Jackson to more recently – Derek Santos, and now you're with Kevin Cunningham. Uh, how have all the different approaches benefited you going into this fight, you think? Oh, yeah. Kevin, he's a great coach. He's real um, militant. He's, uh, he's um, you know, real motivational. Uh, mm-hmm. He's worked with a lot of great champions. And, yeah, you know, I'm going in there with a very experienced corner. So, you know, it's – now, once the bell rings, it's up. It's up to me, you know, to get the job done. And win or lose, you have a chance to make a huge impression in front of the whole world on ESPN. Uh, and I'm also sure that the fact that you saved the show for them won't be forgotten by the top rank executives. Uh, how much energy does this give you going into this fight week and and for the rest of your career? Oh, it's it's uh, it, I mean a lot. I mean, it just shows you, man. I mean boxing crazy things could happen you know that's why it is really important to at least always be in the gym you know all the young fighters they should take this as an example to just always be in the gym because this is you know you can always get that one phone call that can change your life this week we are talking about heavyweight rivalries and I am joined by site contributor and expert on heavyweight boxing, Hunter Breckenridge. And in wake of the fact that we have just seen, not too long ago, a significant heavyweight trilogy complete itself. Three fights between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. And... There's no question that they saved the best for last. Uh, their their third fight, which was won in dramatic fashion by Tyson Fury, um, a clean knockout for all intents and purposes. Uh, it's it, it it was a fight that really made an impression, not just on boxing fans but on sports fans. And uh, Hunter and I we started thinking, you know. 
Yeah, it's a significant uh, heavyweight rivalry, a significant trilogy. What other heavyweight rivalries um, deserve a little more attention? And we want to go back and look at some of the heavyweight rivalries that uh, maybe for many sports fans and even some diehard fight fans kind of have fly under the radar now. And uh, so, so indulge us and join us on a trip back into boxing history as we look at some of the significant heavyweight rivalries of the past. And so I am joined with for this uh, podcast by Hunter Breckenridge, as uh, mentioned. Hunter, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy talking boxing. Yes, and I think what we'll do is we'll kind of uh, uh, we'll start with the more recent underrated rivalry, and then we'll we'll go back in time uh, and back to a period in heavyweight history, which I think both Hunter, both yourself, Hunter, and me regard as. Um, well, the time when some of the best fighters ever were competing in the heavyweight division, and unfortunately, they never got the their just due, and uh, so we'll save the best for last. But let's start with a heavyweight rivalry, a trilogy, fittingly enough, Fury versus Wilder, a trilogy that... Uh, some are saying is going to uh, be remembered as one of the greatest of all time. I'm not sure about that. Um, but this was a trilogy that really made a, a huge impression on the sport, was very consequential, and that being the trilogy of fights between Floyd Patterson and Ingemar Johansson of Sweden. And uh, their fights took place back in the early 1950s, and they did have a huge impact on the sport in a number of ways. Hunter, what, uh, what are, when someone says Patterson versus Johansson, what immediately comes to your mind? First thing I think of are knockdowns. Um, they, they both treated each other as their own personal basketballs. And especially that first fight, uh, Floyd was down seven times in the third round, I think. And uh, it, it, was, it was a big shock. I mean, we all knew that Patterson had been somewhat protected as heavyweight champion. And that, that was just kind of a well-known thing. He was well-known even at the time. And uh, Johansson, I don't know if he was really expected to do what he did, but he had that big right hand. And Patterson, while underrated in terms of his recuperative abilities, was nonetheless vulnerable to big punchers and even not so big punchers and when Johansson uh finally landed uh landed a good shot and uh just just blew him away and it was I it, it was the start of a tremendous rivalry because Patterson got his, his return match and uh proceeded to give it right back to him and this was just uh 
you know, is one of those things that I know was considered exciting back then. I also know that a lot of people now tend to maybe underrate Patterson a little bit and don't even really rate Johansson that much. Uh, he's definitely known more for his lack of chin these days than anything else. Floyd is. Um, and, you know, a lot of people remember him more for losing the list than anything else. But that was an exciting trilogy. And those th those two guys uh, really, you know, especially for people who were kind of known as gentlemen and, you know, thought of in positive terms by the media then in the late 50s, early 60s, they were they nonetheless uh, really went to war and it was uh, exciting. What are your thoughts on uh, that trilogy? Well, I agree 100 uh, percent. All three of their fights were were exciting fights. There's no question about it. Their styles meshed in 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 a way that uh, gave fans lots of excitement, lots of violence. I mean, uh, um, you know, the first fight at Yankee Stadium in 1959, um, it saw, well, the key thing to understand is that Ingemar Johansson was more or less an unknown um, and Sweden is not exactly a country known for producing uh, world-class fighters. Um, at the same time, you know, it was an attractive matchup, partly due to the fact that, you know, Johansson was was uh, he, he was he was he was a highly ranked contender, but at the same time, a lot of people didn't know anything about him, so there was a sort of a mysterious factor. Uh, an intrigue factor, uh, but but he was a five to one underdog, and you can imagine the shock when he knocked Patterson down seven times in the third round, thanks to what he referred to as his tunder and lightning, and that being his his deadly right hand. Um, what I think sometimes goes, uh, you know, people overlook perhaps from that fight is the tremendous courage that Floyd Patterson exhibited. I mean, that's an exceptional fighter who gets up not just once or twice or three times, but seven times. Floyd just kept climbing back up to his feet and then getting knocked down again. Uh, I mean... For me, that that that's something extraordinary. Um, so that was a huge upset, and uh, but Floyd came right back in the rematch, and the rematch has to count as one of the most remarkable and vicious one-punch knockouts in heavyweight history, as Floyd Patterson, who it's well known. He didn't exactly have a, a typical boxer's psyche. He, he was not known for really having a great killer instinct. Um, and, but, to, but to regain the title, he had to show that kind of killer instinct, and he did when he landed an absolutely vicious flying left hook. He had, a, he had a unique left hook, didn't he, Hunter? It was almost like a leaping left hook. And, and he would get all his weight behind it. And he landed a, a perfect shot on Ingemar Johansson in the rematch. It was a beautiful one-punch knockout. But as soon as Johansson was counted out 
And it's a memorable knockout in part because Johansson was out cold and twitching. His legs were twitching on the canvas um, as he lay there. Floyd immediately, you could see it. He, he you know, he felt terrible <laughs> about what he'd just done, you know, and, and, was, and showed great concern for his fallen opponent. Um, and, then the key th and then the key thing that has to be noted about that fight is that Floyd Patterson was the first fighter in the history of the heavyweight division to lose and then regain the heavyweight championship of the world. Many had tried, but none had succeeded until Floyd Patterson turned the trick. And, of course, then that set up the, the trilogy fight between the two. And um, on the FightCity.com, we have a number of top 12 lists, uh, which I think are very entertaining, and I encourage everybody to check out. And uh, we have won the top 12 all-time greatest opening rounds. And ranked on that list is the opening round of the first, or sorry, the third Patterson versus Johansson fight because they traded knockdowns in that first round. So as you said, Hunter, they they abused each other and used each other as punching bags or their own personal fungo balls and bounced each other off the canvas. And it's true, seven knockdowns in the first fight, a clean knockout, and did uh, refresh my memory if you can. Did, did Floyd go down in the rematch? I can't recall. But... Ahead, sorry. No, no, please. Uh, he was. I know he was rocked in the rematch, uh, but he was hit hard in the second. But uh, he actually demonstrated a, a bit of a. You know, he, he showed that he had some some bone in his jaw and, and took it and kind of plowed through it. It was clear that he just would not be denied. Um, I, I don't think he actually went down in the second. I know he went down in the third. But the second, I think he managed to kind of just will his way through and keep keep his feet. So um, one thing you you, you mentioned uh, that he was the first heavyweight champion uh, to regain the heavyweight title, but he was also the ninth one to attempt it. So that, to me, is even more impressive. Uh, Jim Corbett tried it. Bob Fitzsimmons, Jeffries, Dempsey, Max Schmeling, Joe Lewis, of course. Ezra Charles tried three times. Walcott tried it. And almost all of them, it was worse each time they tried it. And uh, it's impressive. Not only did he regain it, but he regained it after getting pasted in a short fight, you know. And um, that, that that's something that, as you said, he kept getting up. And he he had such, um, just such a will. And, and as you said, he did not have a fighter's mentality in a lot of ways. He didn't have that killer instinct. He was a guy who was known, you know, as kind of a shy, gentle sort of person outside of the ring. And even in the ring, he didn't relish, you know, he didn't relish the violence. Uh, he fought, I think, in part because he was good at it. And he had a, a, a huge amount of just natural talent, physical and uh, skill-wise. And, you know, it worked for him. But uh, it was it was almost even more extraordinary because he wasn't a fighter in the sense of, you know, someone who enjoyed the violence and, and liked giving it. He wasn't like a, a Pacquiao who seemed to, to relish getting hit and hitting back, you know, and... 
but but he still had that warrior's mentality you know we sometimes use phrases calling fighters warriors and you know it's not the, quite the same but of any sport you know it's it's a lot it, it's still the most it's still more appropriate with boxing than any other sport and he certainly was willing to pull that it from him from inside himself and and yeah he uh uh when he came back boy did he come back uh that's why some people uh you know, not everyone counted him out in his first fight with Liston, in part because, you know, they saw what he was able to do against uh, against Johansson and and in other situations where he'd been hurt. Yeah, and a brief aside here, if we may. I mean, I think you would agree with me, Hunter, that Floyd Patterson is, counts as something of a underappreciated heavyweight because he's probably best remembered. Um, unfortunately, uh, undeservedly, for his defeats, uh, those being his knockout losses to Sonny Liston and then uh, two losses to Muhammad Ali. And the fact of the matter is, after he lost the heavyweight title and his reign as champion was, was not exactly, was not uh, anything to dismiss, um, he defended the title a number of times against some viable contenders. Yes, he was protected to some degree. Customato, it's well known, was not at all confident about his fighter's chances against Liston and tried to delay that fight as long as possible. But after he lost the title, his run is extraordinary. I mean, uh the the if if you look at his record and look at the the fighters that he defeated uh both as champion and then afterwards you know i mean it's really actually i think i think one of the more remarkable records in the heavyweight division and is deserves uh, i think he i've got a feeling that he just in general deserves to be ranked higher on everyone's lists of the all-time great heavyweights um but moving on, he won the heavyweight championship of the world after Rocky Marciano retired. And uh, so it was a, 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 a battle for the vacant title between himself and Archie Moore. And that allowed him to become world champion. Now, similarly, Joe Lewis... The longest, well, perhaps no longer. I'm not sure. Is it still the longest? But in my in, in my book, anyway, the most dominant reign as heavyweight champion, it's no doubt. Oh, it, it's still the longest. Okay, thank you, Hunter. Um, 26 uh, consecutive title defenses, I believe. Was oh, it 25? Okay. Um, you know, just remarkable. But... After back-to-back wins over Jersey Joe Walcott, the first one being highly questionable, Lewis retired. And after he retired, of course, there was a process by which to determine, okay, how do we find a new champion? And actually, there have been a number of bouts leading up to that point in time involving a number of different fighters for example sorry for example Elmer Ray um Joe Baxky uh, uh Rex Lane a number of good contenders but the two top names the guys that that you know were 
above the rest were Jersey Joe Walcott, who, as mentioned, uh, had back-to-back losses to Lewis, and Ezra Charles, the all-time great uh, light heavyweight who had moved up to heavyweight. Now, they were set against each other to decide the successor to Joe Lewis, and that set in motion another heavyweight rivalry that I think, Hunter, you would agree, is somewhat underappreciated now. They, the, Walcott and Charles, for me, represent two of the best heavyweights in history. I mean, I mean, maybe not top 10 uh, necessarily, but they've got to be in your top 15. They're two great fighters. And Ezra Charles, for me, pound for pound, is one of the all-time greats. So a four-fight series between Walcott and Charles... And uh, this is definitely a historic and remarkable heavyweight rivalry. Wouldn't you agree, Hunter? Absolutely. Um, it was it, it was it was one of those that started out. I think there were fight fans at the time that were disappointed just because it was the end of an era. Joe Lewis, who, as you said, had been so dominant for so long, um, and his yeah, his twenty five defenses uh, that was even you know noting that he took off you know three years during world war ii essentially and was inactive and uh jimmy bivens was kind of recognized as sort of the interim champion while he was out but it it was joe lewis of course who was who was the real guy and and so filling his shoes was what, what i think a lot of people were looking at and that's you know that's hard to do and while both Ezra Charles and Jersey Joe had some power and were certainly talented fighters you know they they weren't as big as Joe they didn't have that knockout finishing ability they you know they they didn't inspire people and and so but they were still absolutely excellent fighters and i i will say just um Charles is actually in my heavyweight top 10 all time and Walcott's definitely in the top 20 um these two guys deserve probably more recognition than they get anymore you know uh walcott was started it for a while as kind of a bit of a journeyman actually you know and it it took um there's a, there's actually i think a story uh, a, an article on uh fightcity.com the coal for christmas one um i think it's on fight city it's it's on it's on i've seen it online anyway um it's on the fight city it's definitely on the fight city and i wrote it excellent this is so perfect see i'm I, I, I see. I remember things you do, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, and it, it was it kind of talked about how how it helped basically getting outside help allowed Walcott to kind of to uh, focus on fighting and kind of develop into a top contender, which he eventually did. And he gave Joe Lewis a scare, arguably deserving a win, and then of course getting knocked out in the rematch because Lewis was good at that. But um, it could definitely mark the beginning of the end for Joe. And then, so yeah, so uh, Charles and uh, Walcott, they met in uh, for the first time as part of an eliminator. It was in, uh, I think, uh, 49. It was actually, no, I know it was on 49 because it was on my birthday, June 22nd. Um, obviously, a few years before I was born, but uh, <laughs> just a few. Um, and uh, it was it was a pretty solid fight. It showed there's a lot of technical ability there. Um, and it was for the... Uh, 
it was for the vacant at the time, the NBA, the National Boxing Association, which wasn't necessarily universally recognized. Even back then, there there was a little bit of splintering of the title, but to a lot of people, this was for the marbles. And um, I don't think the ring, for example, or some of the other commissions, like the New York State Athletic Commission, recognized it as the championship. But um, it certainly marked the winner was the best heavyweight in the world, you know, regardless of whether or not he held the title. And um, Charles would go on to actually win it outright. And so that ended up setting up uh, a rematch later on. And uh, if you, uh, yeah, and uh, and then they, so they fought a second time and uh, Charles won again. And sure enough, uh, Jersey Joe kept beating contenders. <laughs> so, uh, well, why not, why not go a third time? And that's when he got to make history. Yes, and that third fight between uh, Walcott and Charles is, well, it's one of the most extraordinary fights in the history of the division for more than one reason, for more than one reason, because uh, Walcott was a huge underdog going into the third fight, even though both... um, you know the fir- the both of the first two fights in the series were competitive competitive 15 round fights in fact there were some uh with the second fight who thought Walcott maybe deserved better it was very close but still people could at the time could not overlook the fact that Walcott was now 37 years old now back then 37 is ancient and he's had four tries at the title and at this point, I mean, people are just kind of like shaking their heads. He's snake bitten. You know, the, there's, there's no way he's going to finally do it. Not only does he do it, he does it in extraordinarily dramatic fashion with a one-punch knockout, a one-punch knockout for the ages. It's a tight, competitive fight, but Walcott seems to have the edge in the third fight. He's fighting with a, a certain urgency, a certain ferocity, that is not always, not typical for Walcott. And in that seventh round, it's an extraordinary sequence. If you've never seen it, go to YouTube, look it up. That third fight, which I believe was in Pittsburgh. And uh, they're in the corner, and the referee separates them. And then Walcott, he walks towards Ezra Charles in, a, in this nonchalant manner, sort of like... Uh, you know, it's hard to describe, kind of like, like he's he's going for a stroll uh, through the park or something and kind of like rolling his shoulders as he does nonchalantly and he's kind of looking aside and then, bang, he just lets this left hook out of nowhere go and it connects full force on Charles' chin and Charles, Charles is a very sturdy fighter but this but this shot finished him. He went down to his credit. He tried to get up. He couldn't beat the count. One of the most extraordinary one-punch knockouts in the history of the sport, I would argue, and it made Jersey Joe Walcott the heavyweight champion of the world at 37 years of age. Yep, not only, yeah, 37, he was at that point what became the oldest boxer to ever win the heavyweight championship. It'd take 43 years for that record to be broken. Um, and it was, I, I believe that fight was also his fight of the year in 51 by Ring Magazine. It was it was spectacular. Um, yeah, you're right, it was Pittsburgh, it was at Forbes Field. 
Um, it was, and you mentioned how nonchalantly Walcott. Walcott had this interesting that sort of affect in the ring. He wouldn't, you know, it depend it would depend on the situation, but he had that famous like sort of walking away thing he would do. He'd he kind of turn away and then pivot and 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 hit you with a shot as he's turning back around. Yeah, and he would sometimes, you know, walk toward an opponent, kind of hands down, looking uh, like he's just taking a stroll. And it's uh, it, it's he he had a lot of sneaky tricks, and uh, you know, I think a lot of that was because he was a veteran of, you know, he'd been around for so long at that point and had gone through everything. He had, he had been a journeyman. He'd been a contender. He had, this is, as you said, his fifth go around at the heavyweight title. And uh, it was, you know, at snake bitten maybe, but also man, was he gaining experience and, uh, and, and it was a, uh, it was a spectacular fight, a spectacular ending to the fight anyway. And then they had a, a fourth fight and, um, that went the distance. Uh, there were a lot of people who actually thought uh, Ch- uh, Ezra Charles deserved to win it. It was it was a close competitive fight. Uh, Walcott certainly landed some good shots, and uh, but uh, most like uh, I, I think a slight majority of the press at the time um, actually had Walcott the uh, I'm sorry had Ezra Charles the, the winner by a narrow decision, but. Walcott got the win and defended his title and was 38 at that point and would, of course, go on to face Marciano after. But a, a four-fight uh, rivalry is something that you don't see a lot anymore, you know, maybe outside of someone like, you know, a, a Pacquiao Marquez or Vasquez uh, Marquez. But um, a lot of Marquezes here. Uh, one, one notable thing about their fourth fight, uh, Zach Clayton uh, was actually the first uh, – african-american uh to referee a world title fight so all three men in the ring uh were black and which was a pretty big deal in 1952 you know so it was, it was definitely some history making there as well yeah zach clayton the referee who was who was most uh most well known for being the third man in the ring for the rumble in the jungle alley versus foreman in 1974 um yeah, so I mean when you when you when you chronicle the entire series of fights in the end you you have to conclude that okay, maybe uh not every match was a uh, fight of the year, but but we're talking four highly competitive battles and one extraordinary knockout. I mean, this is a rivalry that definitely deserves more attention than it than it routinely gets and uh and i agree with you hunter in my opinion walcott and charles are two all-time greats walcott especially i think is underrated um when you look into the whole story of walcott's career um it's a story of incredible um you know just a refusal to give up, although he he apparently retired many times. The boxing game almost drove him nuts, but everybody knew how talented he was, and part of, of, it wasn't just his record and how many fights he had, it's also the fact that he was a sparring partner for some of the top guys. He was was one of Joe Lewis's sparring partners uh, before uh, he fought him uh, at Madison Square Garden. Um, so Walcott, you know, I regard as one of, one of the, I mean, he's, he's a borderline top 10 great. That's how I look at him. 
Uh, he's got a number of losses. He was a bit inconsistent. But still, when we look at that rivalry, Walcott and Charles, that's, that sh- that's a rivalry that deserves to be celebrated. And uh, four great fights, one extraordinary knockout, and, and a great story, a, gr- a great rivalry. Definitely. So moving backward in time, and, and it's kind of interesting to, to end our discussion of Walcott versus Charles with noting that it was a extraordinary event to have Zach Clayton, the referee. Why was that extraordinary? Well, because race is an issue. Race is a, always an issue in America and always an issue in boxing. And um, so that final fight was the first time you had three black men in the ring in a heavyweight championship fight. And that is germane to the rivalries we want to talk about next because we're going back in time to what you could refer to as the murderer's row of the heavyweight division. and An extraordinary time. So let's set the scene. I mean, Jack Johnson is the heavyweight champion of the world and he's the first black heavyweight champion of the world. But it's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? he was most reluctant to defend his title against other black fighters. In fact, he did not fight any uh, black fighters until late in his championship reign. In 1913, he faced battling Jim Johnson. That was the first heavyweight championship fight between two black pugilists. And, of course, Jack Johnson won. That fight took place in Paris, France, as I said, in 1913. Otherwise, all of Jack Johnson's championship defenses were against guys like Stanley Ketchell and James J. Jeffries and Frank Moran. And he froze out from title contention primarily four truly great heavyweights, those being... Joe Jeanette, Sam McVeigh, Sam Langford, and Harry Wills. Those four guys deserved more than they got. They were, they were four terrific fighters. And as a result, they ended up fighting each other multiple times. So when we're talking underappreciated or under, underrated heavyweight rivalries, We've got to talk about those four guys. Again, Sam McVeigh, Joe Jeanette, Sam Langford, Harry Wills. Where do you want to start with that, Hunter? Uh, I'd say let, let's start with Sam Langford. Uh, Langford wasn't naturally a heavyweight. He was easily the smallest of the bunch. Um, I think he was something on the order of 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, he was kind of a built like a little fire plug. He fought welterweight early on, even lighter, and uh, was was already, you know, kind of a top middleweight as he was rounding into his career. But he found he could hang with heavyweights. And he he uh, when he was at near the beginning of his career, he fought Jack Johnson and Johnson handled him, but even noted that this guy is going to be trouble. And I think part of the reason why Langford never got a shot against Johnson against uh against Sam Lang- uh, Sam Langford, excuse me, never got a shot against Johnson as a champion because he remembered that early bout. And uh, 
and Sam Langford was this just natural talent. He was short, but he was quick. He had ridiculous power for, for, you know, he was able to generate a lot of force. He, um, he fought, he fought all those guys. He probably had the best head to head record. Maybe Harry Wills did, but he, he, uh, between him and Jeanette and McVeigh, especially he won more than he lost against all of them. And, um, they, and they were all super talented, but, uh, Langford was, and Langford was this guy who ended up like a lot of fighters fighting on too long. Uh, by the time the early twenties hit, he was, he went, he was basically blind in one eye and had to stop fighting when it was, when he went blind in the other one. And, um, but was, was just this ridiculously talented guy. There's a little bit of footage of him, not a whole lot, but the footage even so that era, and I don't, and I don't want to talk too long here uh, before we really get into it, but I want to say that that era especially was kind of a pioneering era where from the, basically the first two decades of the 20th century um, boxing in its its professional kind of modern sense is really coming into its own. Um, You know, the, the, the first official heavyweight champion under the Queensbury rules was 1885. And by 1900, 1905, they were a lot of more modern. Te- yeah, I wouldn't say modern in the sense that we think of them, but a lot of the techniques that we now think of in boxing had already kind of been developed and been worked out in fights. And the, the game was, you know, there was still a lot about it that we'd find anachronistic. Now, you know, there were there were fights scheduled for 45 or 50 or even more rounds. Um, sometimes there were fights to the finish where it would go all night. You know, 70 or 80 rounds would happen because you know you had to you had to go till somebody couldn't go anymore, and and it was a very brutal time. And they'd fight. You know, if if you fought five times in a month, no one would be shocked at it. Um, so, but but Langford was kind of like the the, the the perfect guy for that era and he was uh, and, and he really kind of was is one of my all-time favorites but but he's a guy who's known kind of as a pound for pound great even by modern fans and I, I think that uh, his some of his compatriots there don't quite get enough love like Jeanette and McVeigh if you want to kind of start us off a little bit on that well I I don't claim to be any kind of true uh expert or you know i've never ever referred to myself as a boxing historian however i have spent uh, some time uh reading up and learning about the careers of uh sam langford joe Jeanette, sam mcveigh harry wills there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that all four um at different points in time could have been world champion they could have been the you know the very top the the top guys and um and then their rivalries which i I, you know definitely their rivalries are underappreciated i mean and not fully documented you know as you as you intimated uh, hunter i mean i mean the records are somewhat sketchy uh but but there's no doubt that just as an example, uh, Langford and Harry Wills fought at minimum a dozen times. In, and if you look at the records, the, you can you can make the case that they may have battled each other as as often as 17 times. I mean, talk about a rivalry. Similarly, Langford and Langford and McVeigh. Uh, they both journeyed uh, uh, down to Australia at one point in their career, 
uh, in their careers, I should say. And um, and they both kind of did a tour of Australia and ended up fighting each other, like I think a dozen, half a dozen times or so. And then, of course, they fought each other some more in the United States. And part of the reason they were fighting each other so often was it was it was the most lucrative option, given the fact that Jack Johnson refused to defend his title against any of them. Uh, and it should be noted as well that the fact that Jack, Jack Johnson was avoiding these guys was not unnoticed. And in fact, in Paris, France, where boxing was very popular and where they happened to be, if I can put it this way, less racist, um, uh, they, the boxing fans were actually, you know, a bit pissed off about the fact that Johnson would not take on Langford or McVeigh or Jeanette. And, um, and uh, they, they, McVeigh in particular, as I understand, was extremely popular in France, yes. and um, and and all three of them fought each other in Paris more than once, and attracted much attention, um, and probably made great money, and probably had great times going to you know the the houses of ill repute in Paris while we while they were there, and you know they probably lived it up. Uh, in fact, I, I have no doubt in my mind they lived it up something special. Uh, while they were in Paris. And then, of course, April 17th, 1909. Now, that's the date that no one should ever forget because that's the legendary fight to the finish between Joe Jeanette and Sam McVeigh. Uh, 48 full three-minute rounds. I'll say that again. 48 three-minute rounds. Jeanette and McVeigh. And um, absolutely legendary. One of the last fights to the finish where the bout did not end until somebody could no longer continue. And after 48 rounds, it was McVeigh's corner that finally threw in the towel. Um, so that's another important point to make because I've heard, that, uh, you know, when you bring up the rivalries, between Langford, McVeigh, Jeanette, Wills, somebody will inevitably say, well, yeah, but you don't know for certain if all those fights were on the level. You know, you don't, you don't know for certain if they were really going all out, you know. Well, uh, we don't have any film. To, uh, you know, we don't have ev full uh, evidence. We don't, we, but, but, it, but there are photographs. There are accounts. There are first-hand accounts that you can look up, that you can read. And there are photographs from the 48-round Jeanette McVeigh war that clearly show the blood, you know, the copious amounts of blood in the corners of the two fighters. I mean, these guys were fighting, and they were going at it for real. And I don't think anybody was pulling punches. I mean, Langford has... I mean, Langford has knockouts over Harry Wills. Harry Wills was a full-fledged heavyweight. He was like 215 pounds. Langford, as you noted, Hunter, was a smaller guy. He probably at his heaviest was like around, what, 180 pounds, something like that. But Langford has knockouts over Wills. I mean, does anybody think that, that, that Wills was taking a dive? What for? What would be the point? 
These fights were on the level. They were vicious. These guys were going all out. And, again, we're talking rivalries of 10, 12, or more fights each. Definitely. And, you know, it's it's funny. Even Honestly, even if, you know, and I agree, I don't think they, and I don't think there was any situation where anyone threw a fight or anything like that. But even if there was a fight or two where they were carrying each other, uh, Langford had 178 wins in his career. I mean, you know, <laughs> at least, you know, that's, that's what we've got documented. Uh, you know, uh, all these guys fought more than a hundred times in their career. I, I actually, I think, uh, uh, Wills might've been just shy of that, but these guys fought a lot and they fought ridiculously tough competition. And it wasn't just each other, you know, uh, Langford was fighting the top guys of the day. Um, even because, because what there were some white fighters who did not draw the color line and, you know, and he was knocking them out too. Uh, you know, people like, uh, Porky Dan Flynn, which is a great name. Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. I love the names from this era too. Gunboat Smith. He, you know, he fought all these basically badasses, and, you know, and, and of course, it, it, it was, but they were they were also stuck because the best fighters were were themselves were Jeanette and, and McVeigh and, and Langford and so who else are they gonna fight they they can't fight for the title they you know as uh, Jack Johnson uh, had a couple uh, um, a couple times uh, more than once where he had he had promised to fight to Langford and then pulled the uh, pulled the football away like Lucy you know and. Uh, uh, it never ended up happening, and uh, much to Langford's chagrin. And yeah, we may, may, maybe it's possible uh, um, if one of them got a title shot, they might have lost against that, uh, you know, against him, or maybe against Dempsey later on, or something. We don't know, but they should have had the shot at least, and they definitely deserved it. Um, just as you said, that war between Jeanette and McVeigh, uh, forty knockout in the 49th round, absolutely insane. Um, yeah, uh, Sam McVeigh at the time was, he was a fire plug. He was a big guy for his era. He was, you know, on the shorter side, 5'10 or so, but he was 200 plus solid pounds. He had, uh, at least I think 16 pounds on Jeanette and was just a stockier, bigger guy with a lot of power. He was, you know, kind of like a proto Tyson in, in his style. And, uh, Jeanette was more of kind of a slick scientific style boxer and Jeanette, you know, they both kept knocking each other down and getting up over and over. And while that fight was kind of the legendary one, um, that was the one everyone should know, especially if they don't. Those guys fought at least five official times and probably a lot more. Um, as you said, yeah, Sam McVay fought Langford 15 times minimum. Um, uh, Langford and Jeanette, of course, at, at least 14. But this, we, we've kind of talked a little less about Harry Wills, who came on a little later. Um uh, Langford was, uh, when, when Wills was kind of coming into his prime was about the same time Langford was kind of coming out of his same with Jeanette and McVeigh and they developed, uh, Langford and, um, Wills developed quite a rivalry early on, but, and it was, it was, as you said, the size difference is incredible. Uh, the black Panther, Harry Wills was six, two easily, maybe even a little, a, a little taller was, um, early on fought maybe two ten, two fifteen, but got heavier as he got older and was just a big solid guy that was huge for that era especially um and um i, I i've written a little bit actually uh about uh 
Harry Wills' career and how he's just kind of, I, I've always argued underrated as a heavyweight. Um, he had a run after, because he had, you know, kind of some growing pains when he first started his career and, you know, he was learning on the job and he was fighting these monsters <laughs> like McVeigh and Jeanette and so on. Um, but once he kind of got on a roll and got going, um, he ended up uh, going virtually undefeated um, if for a run of about, it was something like a decade. Um, and there's a good argument that from, um, in fact, I think I wrote it down here. Yeah. From af after a 19th round knockout loss to Sam Langford in February, 1916, all the way until October 20, 1926, uh, Harry Wills had a record of 58, two, three, and three. Uh, and this was against, again, all these immensely talented fighters, only two losses. Um, one was a fluke injury and the other was a DQ that he rematched four days later, uh, which is not a schedule you'll see anymore. Um, Unbelievable. Was, uh, oh, uh, incredible. Yeah. And, and Harry Wills uh, was occasionally talked about as an opponent for Dempsey. I think Dempsey was a little more interested than his management was, but even Dempsey acknowledged that would have been a fight. And Dempsey himself had said, he, he thought he probably would have lost to Langford had that fight ever happened. And at least had he fought a prime Langford and um, you know, he, he kind of came on in his career at the tail end of Langford's too. But uh, you know, and Dempsey was no dummy. He, he knew that these, while he didn't necessarily draw an official color line, it was still basically enforced. And uh, he, he knew the risks. Uh, someone like Harry Wills could have taken that title from him in 1920, for example, and held it for, you know, at least half of the next decade. And I would not have been shocked by that. Um, and it would have taken someone, I, I'm not even sure someone like Gene Tunney would have beaten him. You know, it would have probably been near the end of the decade that he, you know, he finally, I think, lost against Sharkey later in like around 27 or so, but when he was getting old. Um, but that's what it took. <laughs> Another Hall of Famer, a much younger Hall of Famer, taking him down, and kind of the way of uh, the way the boxing world works. Eventually, the young lions take out the old. Well, yes, it it should be noted, I think, that that there was a a brief. Well, when I say brief, we're talking like a year and a half, two years, maybe, when. When Harry Wills was, I th I don't, I don't like it's it's difficult in my opinion to argue against this idea. Harry Wills was the best heavyweight in the world. Jack Demps Jack Dempsey was not active. He was not defending his title, and and the public, the public was actually clamoring for a Dempsey versus Wills showdown. It was widely recognized that Wills was the most deserving contender, but. What was overlooked, perhaps, at the time was that Wills was no spring chicken. He was getting old himself. He was in his, his early to mid-30s. And, so and so, unfortunately, and it should be noted, Dempsey signed a contract. Dempsey signed a contract to fight Wills. It was supposed to happen. And so Dempsey deserves some credit. He was willing, you know, there's no reason to think otherwise. He was willing to fight Harry Wills. Um... And it would have been a huge fight. But the the problem, according to Dempsey himself, was you just couldn't find any backers for it. The whole idea of there being another black heavyweight champion at that point in time just scared the shit out of everybody after, after the, you know, incredibly uh, tumultuous reign of Jack Johnson. I mean, people... 
now may forget, but I mean, there were full-scale race riots that took place after Jack Johnson defeated James J. Jeffries. People died. People were murdered. I mean, nobody wanted to go through anything that was going to, to cause that kind of unrest in the United States. And so when uh, Tex Rickard and, and Dempsey and, and company, they, as I understand it, they tried to, to put together a Jack Dempsey versus Harry Wills fight, and they just couldn't find any support for it. Um, but, but as you noted, Hunter, a Jack Dempsey versus Sam Langford fight could have happened. But Dempsey himself was very open about the fact that he wanted nothing to do with Langford. And, and, and he is on record as saying, Langford probably would have knocked me out. So that's how good these guys were. You know, when we're talking uh, Joe Jeanette, Sam McVeigh, Harry Wills, and Sam Langford, we're talking four of the, in my opinion, four of the all-time greats in the heavyweight division. And it's a damn shame that none of them got a chance at the top prize, the World Heavyweight Championship. They all deserve that. And, uh, you know, there's no reason to shed a tear for, for example, Harry Wills. He went on to have a successful business. Uh, he had a successful car business uh, of some kind. He was renting cars or repairing cars. He did very well. He was in real estate. He, he invested in real estate. He did very well for himself. And... Um, well, no, I'm getting mixed up. It was Joe Jeanette who did well in the car business, and it was Harry Wills who did well in the real estate business. Both were, both were well off uh, in after their boxing careers. And then Langford, he was not so well off, but he had no regrets. Um, he, he, against doctor's advice, he kept fighting, even though they assured him that if he did, he would end up blind in both eyes. Uh, he didn't care. He kept fighting. I mean, he must have had, you know, when you take all the official bouts and unofficial bouts, he had something like, you know, somewhere between 300 and 400 fights. You know, I mean, just just ridiculous. And later on, he claimed to have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. He enjoyed his, his career. Um, and Sam McVeigh, he died young. So, you know, not much to be said about that. But while, you know, at the same time, just to repeat myself, all four deserved greater opportunities, and it's a damn shame that they were denied those opportunities for the simple fact that they happened to be black. And you would think that we'd learned something since then. We, we would have overcome this ridiculous prejudice about, about race, you know, but God, we're still struggling with it. Oh, definitely, yeah. That and that's a whole other topic uh, to, to get into the history of uh, racism in sport and then outside of sport. Of course, is I mean, it's, I mean, it's been covered by smarter people than myself, of course. But but yeah, the the legacy goes back forever, and and. Uh, it's it's certainly marred and shaped so much of the careers of uh, especially these four that we spoke of and um, you know we know them in part because of the adversity they they went through but uh, 
it would have been would have been nice if they if they if they uh, lived in a just a little bit more just world, you know, and uh, uh, had that shot those shots that they really wanted and then they deserved they had earned. So, um, but here we are, and it's uh, you know a hundred plus years later, and uh, uh, things have improved in some ways, and in other ways, uh, are, there's a long long way to go, and uh, we keep. Uh, I guess keep striving for it the best we can and uh, uh, at least recognize those who who struggled in the past, because uh, that's important to, to to be able to under, you know, the, the whole thing about uh, those uh, the Santa Ana quote about uh, those who uh, <laughs> don't remember the sins of the past are destined to repeat them. And, and that's something not just the sins, but the greats of the past, too, we need to remember because they deserve it. So. Yeah. And and. Yeah, I, I actually take some comfort from the fact that here we are more than 100 years later and the names of those four great fighters are not forgotten. And uh, so I think that about wraps it up. We So our discussion on underrated heavyweight rivalries, we look back at uh, Floyd Patterson versus, versus Ingemar Johansson. Jersey Joe Walcott versus Ezra Charles, and then the great rivalries between Sam Langford, Joe Jeanette, Harry Wills, and Sam McVeigh. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion. And we're signing off now for Fight City Podcast. Expect a tough, clean fight. Protect yourself at all times. Any questions in the challenges?